Well, this evening we're going to continue our study as we've just really begun it in the Ten Commandments. And I've spent two weeks thus far in arguing uh, for the validity of the value of the Ten Commandments for us as New Covenant, New Testament believers. I believe it still is an effect for us. I believe that it's still beneficial for us. And as I was arguing for that, and I was, as I was arguing for it, I was somewhat developing a conviction about it, especially in the area of answering the question, how do we render unto God our love? If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, how do we do that? And then how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? And as I was studying, and it seems like you know things, and then you don't know them when you're studying them again, and as I was being um, reminded of them, I thought how wonderful that the Ten Commandments, in a way, exposit how to love God, exposit how to love our neighbor for us, meaning they give us details on how we can do that, how we can practice those two greatest commands that certainly are for us today. Today we're not going to get into the first command yet. We're going to consider the preface, or what's been called the preface of the Ten Commandments. That's our concern tonight. Our text will be Exodus 20, verse 2. One text, one sentence, and... The preface to the preface goes like this in Exodus 20, 20, 20, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying... And so really, this is a continuation from that. The sentence starts there in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying... But our focus is really going to be verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. Now for your notes, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 5.6 is an identical portion to this text. It's a preface and it's word for word the same. If you go back to verse 1, you'll notice who it is we're hearing. When we come to the matter of the Ten Commandments, it shouldn't surprise us that these are the words of God. This is not merely Moses' words. In John chapter 1, I believe it's verse 17, it's recorded as saying, the law came through Moses. And that's exactly right. Through him, from God. Moses is here, as it were, a preacher, a town crier. Just like I mentioned last week about the preacher. He is speaking only what he heard from God. He is a prophet. And so thus, the words before us as we come into this study are the words of God. And before we begin, why don't we pray and ask God's blessing on this study. Father, we are dependent upon you to un for understanding. 
for understanding of how we should know, Lord, uh, what our redemption leads us to. As we see this typified before us, as we see um, this designation, this uh, decree or this pronouncement of you being the God of Israel and Israel being yours, yours because you redeemed them. And what that means for us as we consider that in the light of our redemption, how we ought to live our lives. And I pray that you would give us understanding of these things, help us not to resist them, help us to be clear in our understanding so that we would hear and we would obey. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to bring to your attention tonight is that first phrase, and it's really point number one. Notice first the lordship of God. Now in my notes, this doesn't have any bearing on you because you can't read them, but I've capitalized L-O-R-D, ship, lordship. And I do that because in our Bibles, when we see the capitalization of all of those letters, those four letters, L-O-R-D, we of course are considering what in the Hebrew language is the name of God, which is Yahweh. This is a self-declaration self of God. And it is full of theological weightiness. In the first place, we see from what he says when he says to the people, I am the Lord your God, is we see that he is bearing of himself as a witness to himself that he has a unique place as God. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. And this is the most holy name of God. Just as he revealed it to Moses back in Exodus 3, verse 14. I am who I am. Now there's things that we need to remember about that. First, that God's purpose in answering Moses in that context, and in this most peculiar way in Exodus 3.14, was to make it absolutely clear that he was infinitely and transcendently different from the gods of Egypt. That's the question that Moses has when he comes before the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? Who are you? Now, it's very interesting. If you go back and you study even the word, you just look up your concordance, capital L-O-R-D, and you look through Genesis, it's regularly used in every chapter until you get to Jacob's life. Once you get to Jacob's life, and around chapter 33, it starts falling out of use in regularity. It comes back pretty strongly in, verse, in chapter 39. And then from 39, I don't, see we, I don't think we see it again until chapter 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons. We see it one time in between those 10 verses. And before that, we see it a multitude of times. And many scholars suggest that when we see uh, Moses coming before the burning bush, and we see Moses asking, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? Many believe at this point in time, the name of Yahweh had been forgotten by the people of Israel. That they, as being slaves in the land of Egypt for so long, had forgotten the uniqueness of their God. And, and one of the unique qualities about 
this name is it derives from a root verb which means as it's translated in our bible i am or i exist the self-existent one it's a very provocative name it's one of those names that i mentioned a couple weeks ago in my morning service that tends to take your breath away when you read it god in his wisdom when he reveals himself reveals himself in a way that only describes god as he must be there is no god who is created to be created is the antithesis of being god And he reveals himself to Moses as the uncreated one. And this is where the name Yahweh comes from. It derives from that Hebrew verb that is translated I am in Exodus chapter 3, 14. So God is speaking to his people. The Exodus has already taken place. Now they're at Mount Sinai. Why would he feel the need to reveal himself by this name at this time in this way? And you might not feel the weight of that when I'm asking that question. So the people of Israel would reverence them as they were, meaning the commands, as they were from the very hand of the one true God. That's the first answer. God is revealing himself as, I am the Lord, your God, I am Yahweh, so that they would understand the weightiness of the commands that have come to them from him. For it says in Exodus 32, 16, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now this is another one of the arguments that I could have made for why the Ten Commandments have a lasting quality. In the Old Covenant, no other commands were ever written in such a fashion, were ever maintained in such a fashion. There is a natural quality about these that God etched in stone to show their lasting value. And in the New Testament, we know that he has etched those in our hearts. And we ourselves demonstrate, as it were, the handwriting of God. But these are the commands of the one true God, as opposed to the idols of Egypt. They are not commandments that have come from any other source than the uncreated God. Now my thought when when I considered that, and one of the reasons I asked that question, why state this before you give the commands, is that consider that Israel as a nation, is standing before a mountain that's lit on fire, as it were. I mean, it's not on fire, but it's covered in smoke and thunders and, and, and lightning and all of this, this tremendous natural display is happening before them. And my, my question includes the, the idea of, if all this is happening before them, why does God feel the need to delineate himself as Yahweh at this time. You know, aren't they concerned enough? Why would they have to reverence a particular name? But that's just it. They've come out of Egypt. Egypt was a people that were very animistic. They only 
believed in natural wonders as having a kind of inherent quality to themselves, an inherent deistic quality. They worship nature. And so the confusion may have set in as Israel is seeing this display on the mountain. And they've come out of Egypt after hundreds of years thinking, the gods of Egypt, are they doing this? Who's doing this? Look at these natural wonders. Are the gods angry? What's going on? And God thunders from the mountain, I am the Lord your God. God will not allow their consciences to be deceived into thoughts about any other God. Lowercase g. They stand before a mountain dressed in smoke, quaking in its inanimate boots, as it were, not for any other reason than that God, the God of gods, is addressing his people, as it were, face to face. God will not allow their minds to turn from the animate to the animism of the Egyptians, such that this was not nature acting independently. This was God, the God over nature, imposing his will and declaring his greatness through a display of natural wonders. And he echoes forth out of those wonders, I am Yahweh. God doesn't want confusion when it comes to service rendered unto him. We don't render ourselves as obedient under God with anything else in mind but that God is the one true God who deserves our absolute attention and obedience. Secondly, God declares that Israel belongs to him in this announcement. Notice that he doesn't take a poll. Who wants to be my people out there? How many of you want me to be your God? No, when he declares to them, I am the Lord, your God, he is making a sovereign assertion of ownership, especially to their being called from among the nations of the world to live before him as his particular chosen covenant nation. Now, do not lose sight of the unique quality of graciousness in this scene. Listen to this. God has not yet given them the Ten Commandments. What does that mean? He has already declared that they belong to him apart from anything that they could have done. You see that picture here? He is telling them in covenant language, I am the Lord your God. He has not given them a word of the Ten Commandments to obey yet. He goes further than this even. Deuteronomy chapter 7 as to why he chose them. He gives two, reason and two reasons in verses 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy 7. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, Yahweh, set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Listen to this answer. This is answer number one. But it is because the Lord loves you. <laughs> Why does God love you? It's because he loves you. That's the answer he gives. This is number one. He set his love on them. He willfully, out of all the kingdoms, out of all the peoples in the world, set his affections on them. 
If you know anything about the Old Testament history, you know it wasn't because they were more righteous than any. I'm reading through Kings right now, and I'm just, of course, baffled still by the measure of iniquity that they build up against themselves, against God who had redeemed them, who had shown them steadfast love. That's number one. He loves them because he loves them. He desired to show himself lovely to them, and that's why he loves them. Secondly, and in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, this is the second reason. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, of, of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Therefore, God does not say, nor does he ever admit to choosing Israel from all the nations of the earth because of anything particular in them. Not of this multitude of people, there's nothing in them. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 9. You don't need to turn there now. I, just, I really want to consider that second answer he gave them. Because I think it's powerful when we see God's kindness here. Consider the second answer. He says, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God is a covenant keeper. God does not go back on his promises. Even the language, I am the Lord your God, as I've already mentioned, is covenant language. As such, it signals that God is entering into covenant with them, with this group, with Israel, even as he is speaking. If the Israelites, listen to this, would have had ears to hear, this should have been the means of great faithfulness in their own lives to their God. Because they would have recognized something in it. That is the faithfulness of Yahweh to his word. Notice again in Exodus 3.15 what God said to Moses from the burning bush. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am remembered throughout all generations. There is something very special about this unfolding. God is so concerned with the affections of his own promises. He's concerned with the fulfillment of his own promises. Why is that? Because he's concerned for his own glory. God is concerned because he gave promises by grace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is glorious when he is seen as being the God of fulfillment to those promises. But what's so amazing is that this link can be traced all the way back to Abram himself, and then we can see this miraculous, not miraculous, this, this providential fulfillment that God has brought even to the people of Israel. Genesis 15, 13, and 14 is the covenant that God makes with Abram. Abram. When he says, know for certain, this is the Lord speaking to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. That's a prophetic announcement on what has just taken place to the people of Israel. Now listen to this. Verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. The children of Israel have just experienced this. The fulfillment of this very word of God about to their father Abram has just come to pass and they are the generation to experience it. Not only this, but they are, as they are receiving this word from Yahweh, as I said, the very fulfillment of the first promise that God gave to Abram. Listen to the first promise, Genesis 12, 2. And I will make of you a great nation. Speaking to Abram. And then listen to Genesis 15, 5, the Abrahamic covenant once again. And he brought him outside, that is Abram, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now that's quite a statement, okay? Now go to Deuteronomy 10.22. I just want you to turn there because I want you to see when God announces himself as I am the Lord your God, just how incredible this is that this is taking place. Deuteronomy 10.22. And it's set up perfectly in this text. I really don't have to comment much on it. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons. Now that's not very good odds. That you would consider at that point that there is going to be a nation born of this 70 people that would number the stars. Listen to what he says. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The children of Israel were living in the middle of some of the greatest fulfillments of promises that was made for them, was made for their fathers. And God was showing himself great and fulfilling them. And this is why I say they are in a position of grace because they have not even yet received anything that would say to them, if you do this, you will be my people. They are his people by virtue of a promise he gave to their fathers. Make no mistake, apart from Christ, there is no grace ultimately. There is no grace ultimately. But God's purposes are worked out in eternity. Therefore, he could pass over sins worthy of immediate justice until the fulfillment of their payment in his son. Even now, he is also storing up wrath against all of the ungodly for the final day of judgment. This is all to say that God, in prefacing the Ten Commandments here, is making a covenant with the nation of Israel while already using covenant language to describe them, meaning, I am the Lord your God. He hasn't even fulfilled the covenant. It, the terms of the covenant haven't even been laid, and he says, I am the Lord your God. 
Because it depends not on them in the first place. It depends on him and his love and his promises. Not on their own righteousness. Could never have because they had not even received the law. The law was never given for them to attain a righteous standing before God, meaning to be justified before God. That's what's pictured here. And I believe in this is a type, it's a, it's a sign, if you will, of our own redemption. This is exactly the way the New Testament talks about us. I quoted a few weeks ago, I think it's a perfectly appropriate text for this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, listen to the result of the grace. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's exactly the way this is being typified in Israel here. The grace is, he's, he's pulled them out. He is their God. Now I give you works. Obey me. That's the type. But perhaps the fitting question at this point would be, if this is a fitting picture of our own salvation, which I think it is, where is Christ? Because there's nothing outside of Christ. There is no salvation. And there is no type outside of Christ, even for our lives as Christians. Brings us to our second point, though, which I'm just calling the Redeemer and the Redeemed. Because Israel have come from somewhere to get here. They're not just out of nowhere, willy-nilly, standing at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is calling them his people. They came from somewhere. They came from Egypt. He says, I am the Lord your God, back to Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the display of God's glory that is called the Exodus from Egypt, I believe we can see three very clear pictures. Number one, God's absolute superiority over the gods of Egypt and the plagues that they were judged with. I believe this represents, if you will, a type of Satan and the demonic realm. Yahweh's sovereign control over the natural world to bring about the ten plagues was a demonstration of his sovereignty over the gods, the false gods of Egypt. The Egyptians were pantheistic. As I said, they were animistic. They were pantheistic. They, they worshipped the Nile. And here you have the Nile turning to blood. Here you have frogs coming out of the Nile. They worshipped the sun, and here you have the sun scorching what God did was he turned all of the things they worshipped against them. Declaring, showing the glory of he himself, the one true God. I wish I could draw the analogy between the new covenant. Christ triumphing over Satan. In that moment that Satan seems to have his superiority, his, his win against God. Christ triumphs over him at that very moment. 
You see, Israel is under servitude in a land that is not theirs. They have no hope. And God turns their own worship deities against themselves, as it were, showing his glory over them. Exodus 12, 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. So it was his purpose to show them lame, incapable of stopping Yahweh. I will execute judgments, he said. I am Yahweh. Secondly, God's glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And I think this represents the world, doesn't it? The city of man. The Pharaoh is a type of a city of man. And it's clear by his first opposition to the one true God. And second, because of his opposition to the people of God. This is the world that opposes itself to the people of God. Typified in Pharaoh. Just as it was with Pharaoh, so it will be with all of God's enemies. He will be glorified in their judgment. Exodus 14:18, I've already read, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. As God received glory in his judgment over Pharaoh in Egypt, he also receives it in the redemption of Israel. At the same time, this is the way Paul speaks. He speaks about it in two, two aspects. The redemption aspect, God receiving glory in their redemption, and also in the judgment of evil. Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. <laughs> As I said, I think Pharaoh typifies the world. And what typified the world in Christ's sufferings but the leaders of Israel? Pilate. Those are the leaders. Those are the principalities and rulers. And they hated Christ. And they put him to shame, open shame. And they mocked him. They led in the mocking and the beating and the scourging. And they put him on the cross. And Christ triumphed over them on the cross. And here we see him doing it over Pharaoh. What if God desired to show, again in Romans 9, verse 22, what if God desired to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Pharaoh typified that. And then in verse 23, you see the redemptive aspect. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of of mercy. Israel typifies this, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Jonathan Edwards, I won't go too far into detail here. He speaks so incredibly on this. If you guys don't read Jonathan Edwards, or if you haven't, pick something up from him, anything. Pick anything up from him, and I think you'll benefit, even if you have to work at it. He's not easy to read. But he talks about how our joy in heaven, and in fact the glory of God in heaven will be tied, our joy will be tied to the increase of the glory of God. As, as God is glorified, our joy will be raised and increased for eternity. And he talks about how the judgment of wicked 
will be one of the reasons we continually glorify God in heaven. Because at that time, we will see evil for how evil it is. And we will see that God and his overcoming of evil deserves ever-increasing glory for overcoming it. And we see that typified in Pharaoh here. Thirdly, we see God's redemption of Israel. And this is demonstrated in the Passover. But what is also demonstrated in the Passover? But the significance of sin being redeemed. Sinners being redeemed. So you have, in a sense, this picture of Satan and the gods of Egypt and the city of man or the world and Pharaoh and even our own sin in the Passover being displayed. All in the Exodus. God did not merely redeem Israel from the power of evil, as I said, that was outside of themselves. Their delivery from evil within is typified, isn't it? In that first Passover. In fact, it was the Passover that ultimately saw them released from Pharaoh. Their redemption ultimately came at the cost of a spotless lamb. But not just the spotless lamb. The spotless lamb was a substitute. The spotless lamb was a substitute for death. The death that visited Pharaoh's house even. It visited every place in the land that did not have the blood of the lamb for a covering. I want to bring your attention to just one final aspect. And then one last ultimate point. Final, here's the final aspect. Israel was saved by the Lord's Passover. That's the way the language speaks. It was the Lord's Passover. Exodus 12, 11. It is the Lord's Passover. It was the Lord's Passover because, number one, he planned it. He planned it all the way back, Abraham. <laughs> you're going to have a people. You're going to have children. And they're going to go into land that they don't know. And they're going to be slaves 400 years. They're going to serve someone they didn't know. And I'm going to bring them out of the land. They didn't plan that. When, they, when Moses first came to them, they said, what, what are you doing? You're going to get us in more trouble. This was God's plan. He initiated it. He accomplished it. That is to say, God was instrumental from the beginning to the end in securing Israel's release from Pharaoh. That is a demonstration of grace. We don't like to talk about grace when we think of the Old Testament, but I don't know any other way to talk about that but typifying the grace not only that we see here to them, because this people didn't deserve it, but certainly as that's fulfilled in us. You know, we were under bondage. We were under the reign of the prince and the power of the air. He had blinded our eyes just as he blinds the world's eyes today. And God planned our release. 
He planned our redemption. He initiated it. He accomplished it. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here's the final point. As we continue in our study, let us never think of the law as something that ever initiates our relationship with God. I think that's the point of all of this. I said all of that to say this. The law never initiates our relationship with God. As it is typified here with national Israel, so it is fully realized with, the new, with us as New Covenant believers. Our adherence and obedience to God's moral laws, the Ten Commandments, is not the basis of our redemption, but rather it is the heart of it. It's the result of it, meaning it's what we long to do. As believers, as those who understand where Christ has brought us from and what he's brought us to, it should be our delight to show love to God. And how do we show love to him? By obeying his commandments. 